0: Well, as we come to uh, this next section in uh, chapter 1, Peter's continuing his emphasis upon the conduct of believers. He's continuing his emphasis, but he returns for a moment here to remind us of the doctrine upon which this conduct is based. And I think that this is uh, a reality check for his uh for his readers you know as he opened up the the book he began emphasizing the acceptance that we have in christ as believers he opened up uh remarking upon a new inheritance that is ours something that is uh imperishable something that is uncorrupted something that will last but he he roots this as he begins the book in God's foreknowledge, he roots this in uh, the sanctification of the Spirit. He roots this in the sprinkling of, uh, of Christ's blood upon his people. All of these things emphasizing it is God who is doing the work and in, in saving and reconciling man to himself. Uh, and then as he makes his way a little bit further into uh, the text, he begins to contrast this hope that we look to that we belong to Christ, and so, so therefore because of our new status that we belong to him, it then changes our behavior. And he's given us uh, again and again here in this later section a uh, call to have conduct that is worthy, conduct that is in uh, in concert with God's character. Our life ought to mirror the character of God, and he finishes uh, in... Uh, this last section in verse uh, 14. Uh, Here he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He roots it in God's nature and his character. He says, if you are going to be a part of God's family, then your, uh, your character needs to look like that of your father. You need to have... Uh, a holy life set apart from the world. And then he further roots this in Scripture as he goes on. He says, quoting, uh, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so he's making this uh, claim again and again, calling all who call themselves Christians to live lives that are set apart. And he's made this claim uh, repeatedly, but now he comes again with kind of this conditional clause. Uh, first, first we look at what he calls us to here, the way that we ought to live. But then he, he gives us a conditional clause by which we are to, to see this, a, a way to qualify this. First, he opens up uh, and he says this. At the end of 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves without, or with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is the next step. This is the next uh, command that he's given us. The way that we are to live. That we should live in a way that is connected to fear In our time of exile. Now, he's doing a couple things here. First, he's reminding us that we are exiles, that we don't belong here, that we are of another place, that we are of another kingdom. As he's done this earlier in the book, in uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, in in the beginning here, verse 1. To the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he's using that same terminology. And again, to remind you, the reason that Peter does this is not because this group of people are physically exiles, but rather he's wanting to draw their attention to the fact that they don't have a homeland spiritually, that they are not to be comfortable uh, in this world, but he's doing this secondarily to remind them that they are God's new covenant people that are brought together. There's, there's no uh, historical... Uh, record that says that this group of people were exiled out this wasn't a physical uh, exile that they were experiencing but rather he's drawing comparisons and saying just as israel was exiled in the past just as they were outside of the land now you are god's covenant people who are brought together he's making a new people giving a new opportunity to live in his covenant and he will be faithful to that covenant And so he's giving this group of people who are under some oppression and some persecution the confidence to see that they are now having that same status as Israel had. That they were God's covenant people. Though they were in exile, God was with them. Though they were experiencing hardship, God was with them. And now as he comes uh, here to, to verse 17, again he emphasizes that this group of people, they are still living in this time of exile. That they are apart from their natural homeland. But he says, as you are in this place where you're uncomfortable, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, it would be natural for us to see the fact that we are living in exile and to look around and to be worried and concerned and afraid and terrified. But this isn't what Peter's getting at here. He's not saying, oh, because you're not comfortable here and because you can never really settle down or because you always feel like you're going to be attacked, uh, you know, it's, it's okay that you feel uh, fearful. But rather, what Peter's doing here is he's rooting this command in the background of God's covenant people traced all the way back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, verse 5, there, there's several places uh, in the book of Deuteronomy where it mentions this, but here's, here's one that I think is... Um, quite helpful for us this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. And then it just continues to go on to describe this land in Deuteronomy chapter 8 there. What Peter is doing here, when he says that we ought to conduct ourselves with fear, when his hearers ought to conduct themselves with fear, he's rooting it in God's character, his nature, his promises. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, Listen, covenant people, children of Israel, the Lord has promised you these good things, these blessings that would be upon you, that they are yours on the basis of belonging to him, that you have the full blessing of God. But he says this, As a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. Now he says that if you start to veer out of that way, the Lord will bring discipline upon you. But he says it as, in comparison, as the way that a man disciplines his son. Now, when you are a father and you're disciplining your son, you're not disciplining them because you are... uh, hating them, you're not disciplining them because you want to make sure that they really suffer, but rather you are disciplining them out of love to ensure that they are experiencing flourishing, that they are learning that the behavior that they have participated in or failed to participate in, uh, that this behavior has led to a discipline in order to correct it so that they might enjoy a future blessing, future flourishing, and that they might come more in line with the expectations of faithful living. And so these disciplines are brought about by by man to their earthly sons for the sake of bringing correction and love and helping them have future success. To really uh, drive them towards good. Now here he says the Lord disciplines not in a way where he uh, is trying to punish us as enemies but rather As sons, he's trying to correct our course when we're going off course. He's trying to push us forward. And then he says this, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Now this is the heart of the matter here. He says the way that you avoid discipline is by walking in the ways of the Lord. By keeping his commandments, by doing all that he says you should do that you should live according to his law, according to his ways, and you will walk with him and you will avoid this discipline. There are commands that we are to keep that the Lord has given us. And Jesus himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the next thing that's added here is by that we should... Uh, Keep the commandments of the Lord by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So keeping commandments comes about by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Now, this again gets back to this idea of fearing. What does that mean, to fear the Lord? Well, it certainly doesn't mean to be afraid in a terrified sort of way, because if a son is disciplined by his father, the son is not uh, terrified or afraid but rather as understanding the correction of the Father. But then he bookends this, this command here to fear the Lord with the blessings of God. If you look back at now at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7, he then says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills. And as he goes on to describe the, the wonderful nature of this land, he's saying that the reason that God is doing this is because he wants these blessings to be yours. He wants them to belong to you. Furthermore, in Proverbs chapter 3, we find that there is this understanding of fear that is uh, connected to uh, these, the wisdom literature. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. As the writer of Proverbs communicates there, it seems that to uh, be wise in your own eyes, or, or to be not wise in your own eyes, is the same as turning away from evil and therefore turning to the Lord. It's recognizing that you yourself don't have all the answers, that you are not God. He further emphasizes this in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so here we find that the emphasis is finding your life, finding your identity, finding uh, God's wisdom, his commands his statutes, his laws. Keeping those commandments leads to uh, the fear of the Lord. To see that he is the one who has full knowledge, full sovereignty over all things. Uh, Many times it has been said as you come uh, to this sort of word, uh, commentators are quick to use an acronym which Some context is helpful and some context is not helpful, but, uh, you know, they kind of operate with this um, understanding that, you know, I don't know what the full acronym, but it is, but it's essentially like uh, fear of the Lord is is, um, something like to fully exalt and revere God, something like that. And so it's this understanding of, of seeing that he is wise, he is apart, he is separate, he is other, and it's recognizing that we ourselves are not. And so here we're looking at this and, and understanding that, as Peter calls us, to conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time of exile, it doesn't really mean here for us to uh, be terrified or to be afraid, but rather to recognize that, one, we don't have a, a, a earthly home here. We don't have a place to, to put down roots and to be comfortable. But rather, because we are from a different place, because we have a new home, because we have a heavenly hope, that there's going to be a, a barrier here between our lives the way that we live and the way that the surrounding culture lives. Now, we get to the beginning of this, and here's the reason why uh, we ought to live this way. He says, we, we get to this conditional clause in the beginning of the verse. He says this, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile now Peter's trying to make a point here he's been trying to make a point this whole time and now he comes and he says and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then you ought to conduct yourselves. You see what Peter's doing here? He's kind of using a trap to get us, to pull us in. He's using this our, our human nature to, to, to pull us deeper into this. Because what he could say is this. He could say, uh, because you call on him as father, who judges impartially, He could have said that, but he says this. If you call on him as father. Right? This is like the classic, like, dad trick. Right? This is the classic dad trick. You you pull out and you're like, I wish somebody wanted this candy. And, like, all your kids are like, I want it, I want it. Right? You're like, if anybody's not going to eat this, then I'm going to have it. And then, like, all the kids are like, ah. This is what he's getting at here. He's trying to, to make his hearers a little bit jealous. He's trying to provoke us to say, to say oh, I call on him as father. I, I do. I do. So when you hear him say, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to, his, to, to each one's deeds, that you're supposed to say like, oh, well, I do. I do. I'm, I'm in. I want to. It's supposed to work in our hearts to bring this forward a little bit. Now, it does this because he's simultaneously bringing two things to us. One, that God is our Father. But then two, he's bringing down this truth that is often hard for us to understand. That God is a judge. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just. Oftentimes, we only want the one. We're always like, oh, I really like the loving God. And he kind of just lets me do whatever I want to do. Nobody's really excited about the just God. But... God's justice brings about his love. They work in concert together, the two together. He's helping us understand that these things exist simultaneously. And he wants us to understand that as we call upon him, we are calling upon the same God who both is perfectly loving and perfectly just. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then he says, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, here's why. We get to, in verse 18, he says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now, Peter comes in and he does this right away. He emphasizes for his hearers uh, this: that believers, that Christians, are not rescued; they're not ransomed with silver or gold. Now, for you and I, we're like, yeah, that that makes like perfect sense because like we don't do a lot of ransoming and like. I don't have silver and I don't have gold, so like this is this could be like as foreign of a concept as you know to me. Like I don't understand this, anyways. We read it without a second thought, and we're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I would never ransom anyone who was silver or gold <laughs> if I had it. So it doesn't really land with us. But for the original hearers, this would have been uh, big news. It would have been big news because this sort of ransoming often took place and. Uh, Peter's emphasis goes a little bit deeper both to the culture that they were living in, but also, again, to tying it to their involvement now with Israel's past history. That if this people is a new people, a people that God has called out, that he has made his own, then they also share in Israel's history. And so he emphasizes this same thing as he earlier emphasized in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now he goes to emphasize this same concept of ransom, Uh, that we find all over the book of Deuteronomy, but particularly in Israel's uh, selection here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is the reason, we're told here, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, the reason that God chooses the the nation of Israel, this group of people. He says here in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it is not So the emphasis that that Peter is getting to is this. That there is a concept of ransom that is brought forth. It is rooted in Israel's history, in Israel's selection as God's people. Now, lest we begin to look at this, and lest uh, the hearers here in 1 Peter begin to look at it and be like, well, of course God picked Israel look how amazing the word he he brings us back and emphasizes like basically like Israel was the worst and like they had nothing going for them and they were the smallest of all the people and they were like like nobody wanted them and they were broken down and super janky and the Lord was like yeah you guys got nothing going for you like I'm I'm gonna set my love upon you like that that was it there was nothing that they had done to make themselves lovely. There was nothing that they would have done to offer themselves up as a mighty people or a powerful people. But it was because the Lord had set his love upon them and were told, therefore, swore an oath to uh, the forefathers that the Lord was faithful and brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed them. From the house of slavery. And so, as I hear this word, as you and I hear this word, we hear the idea of ransom and think of freedom and liberation. This comes as the result of being ransomed. Before, those who were ransomed uh, were in slavery. In bondage. And Peter says, the thing that we're in bondage to... Is being ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Before we come to faith in Christ, before we see Jesus for who he is, before we understand all that he has done for us, before we decide to follow him, we're unbelievers. We are dead in our trespasses, as the scriptures tell us. And our lives are futile, empty, and devoted to serving ourselves. To serving false gods, enslaved in bondage to the idols that are around us. This is something that is, Peter tells us, has been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And we look at this, and it's easy for us to be like, well, you know, now we live on the other side, which is true. We live on the other side of the cross, where we know the truth. But I think that we have a tendency not only to have these things hand, handed down to us by our families, but we also have these things handed down to us now uh, by culture and society. They hand these idols down to us, and they say, Oh, you have, to, you have to live in this certain way. You have to get this type of grade. You have to have this type of job. You have to have this type of... Uh, you know, savings set up. You have to have this type of benefits. You need to have this specific type of uh, career options available to you. You need to come in and and make sure that you're married by this certain age or you're having kids by this certain age or you need to have all these different things that are put in place. And And oftentimes those things are handed down to us by our families, but more than that, they're often given to us by society and culture. They're saying, oh, well, you can't do that, you're not ready yet. Or you should be here by now and you're not. But the truth of the matter is, is those are things that are given to us that we have to process through the gospel. That we have to run all of these things through the gospel to see if they are Lining up with the conduct that is expected of us by Christ. Because it's easy to say, well, good grades are a good thing and we ought to get good grades. And we ought to, we can't, you know, we have to be prepared for the future and I want to have a family. And so in order to have a family, I need to have the right grades so I can have the right opportunities so I can be here. And pretty soon you're just all, all of a sudden, you just have all your idols in a row and you're just moving through them one by one. But we don't see it because good things can often become idols. Good things always become idols. Because we say, oh, those things are good, but they're not Jesus. Because Jesus calls us to a life of following him. And sometimes he says, like, I don't care about your grades. I haven't called you to that. And sometimes he says, I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to take care of you. Jesus has called us to be a faithful steward of what he has entrusted us with and given to us. He's called us to follow him wherever he goes. And so we have to be aware because it's easy for us to fall into the trap of trying to justify our existence to say, well, well, I've got to put in that time because I need those grades. Because, you know, my family has put in a lot of effort and they've made a lot of sacrifices for me, or I've got to be able to make sure that I'm here by this time or that I'm on track to have kids or I have to do this stuff for work to make sure that I'm getting the proper promotions. I have to make sure that everybody knows that I'm valuable and I'm pulling my own weight. We want to be faithful. We want to be good stewards. We want to reflect God's character. But we don't want to pursue these good things for the sake of our own glory or for justifying our existence or for validating uh, their selection of us or for working for approval. We serve the Lord. We don't serve other people. We don't pursue these opportunities for the sake of our own glory or even to make ourselves feel good. More often than not, there are just going to be people upset at you because you're not helping them get what they want. That's just part of being a Christian. People are going to be upset at you all the time. Your job is not to make people, like, everybody be happy with you. You can. If you're doing that, like, you just made a bunch of idols, probably. You want people to see Christ in you. We want people to see his character in you. Peter says here, what's been inherited from the forefathers is worthless. It doesn't lead to faith. The things that they've given, silver and gold, these things are, are they're perishable. They break, they fall apart. But Jesus, he gives an inheritance that, as verse 4 tells us, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The things that we inherit from our forefathers, they they fall apart, they break. We always think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. right? I'm sure that there were plenty of all these like multi who thought it wasn't going to happen to them before the Great Depression or before like all these big Ponzi schemes on Wall Street and everyone finds out like they don't have any money all of a sudden. Everybody thought, oh, it's not going to happen to me. But when you're putting your, your faith, your trust, and your resources that are there instead of Christ as provider, when it does happen to you, you have nowhere to go. These things are Perishable. The things we've inherited from our forefathers, they're greatly valued by man, but they end up being worthless. The silver and gold. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says this, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Then down in verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's like, the, these inheritances of silver and gold, they didn't do anything for me. I expended all this energy, all this effort, nothing. They're not worth anything. So, how then are we ransomed if we are not ransomed with something that is so valuable? Look at verse 19. We are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, Peter does this. He says, you think that money, you think that riches, you think that silver and gold is valuable. These things are things that perish. But now look at the preciousness, the wonder, the value of the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from sin. And brings us into the family of God. This giving up of one's life, the only perfect and pure life, brings us life, redeems us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 In Him, in Christ, that is, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. This comes about through the riches of his grace, not our own doing. Like Israel, we were the smallest, the most worthless, dead, What do you do with something that's dead? Nothing. You can't do anything with it. It's worthless. It's gone. But Jesus, His blood resurrects us. It brings us to life in Him. And now we have an inheritance that is unfading. We are ransomed with the blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Of course, he's referencing here the sacrificial system. Uh, Of course, he's referencing the Passover lamb that would be slain at the very first Passover. The blood would be shed and painted upon the door. sparing Israel from death. And now he gives us confidence. In verse 20 he says this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now Peter, what he does here is he sees that we are again going to be tempted to think like, well, it's kind of last minute of you god to like think like oh you know these guys are in trouble like i guess i'll bail them out but he's wanting us to to see how great god's love is to zoom in to magnify god's name his character his love by seeing that this was a plan this was put together this wasn't a reaction to what happened in the moment there But rather, God had decided to love us so faithfully, to love us so deeply through the blood of his own son. He wants us to understand that this was always a part of the plan. Christ was foreknown, he tells us, before the foundation or the creation of the world. We're no afterthought. Our inclusion in the family of God is no afterthought but rather was planned so that we might know him and enjoy him with full confidence. However, it was made manifest, we're told, in the last times, for the sake of you, God had determined, had planned, that the particular time, the particular moment, where Christ would appear on the scene, timing it out, So that we might experience the goodness, the perfection of his plan. I mean, consider the timing that God brings together for the incarnation, the birth of Christ. Hundreds of years before Christ is even born, we have uh, prophecies going down that saying that the Savior, the King will enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on the exact day. You can't control when you're born to be able to arrive at the right time, to ride through that gate on that exact day, to fulfill that prophecy. The Lord knew he had a time, he had a plan ready, prepared, so that Jesus would come and that we might enjoy the blessings of living at a time when God is fulfilling his saving promises. Earlier we saw that the forefathers, they desired to see this come to pass. And not only that, the angels wanted to look into it too. They're like, that would be amazing if we, were, if, if we could see this there. We could see this happen. They, they longed for this day. But beyond that, it was timed, we're told, for the sake of us. For you, he says. It's a privilege that is given to us. Now he wants us to understand this because what he started off with is this. Conduct yourselves, therefore, with fear as you live as exiles in this time. He wants, us to say, he wants us to understand that you should realize that you have a great privilege. You, should have a great, you have a great honor that belongs to you. And when you realize how great God has loved you, all that he has given you, this should motivate us. It should, it should help us live for him. It was done for our sake, for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God. We've put uh, faith in God because of the work of Christ. What he has done has brought us into his family. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We have faith in God because of the work of Christ. Because God has been faithful, not because we have been faithful. Because our faith is weak. Our faith tends to uh, vacillate. It tends to have moments of excitement and moments of weariness. But the scriptures tell us uh, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. When we are weak, he is strong. It's God's consistency, his faithfulness to his character, to his work, to do all that he said he would do that holds us up. Because he knew that we wouldn't be able to do what we've claimed to do. We like to talk big. They say, like, oh yeah, I will do that right this is this is what happened at the very beginning you think that you wouldn't have a more convinced moment than coming and being rescued uh from egypt the children of israel there having this wonderful moment where like they see god's like crazy throwing down these 12 plagues and rescuing him and they walk through like the parted red sea and they get to the other side and the lord's like giving them food and they're like oh this is amazing and they're at mount sinai and he's like coming down upon the cloud like in a cloud and like this crazy lightning storm to talk with moses and the lord's like gather all the people here and i'm going to tell them the laws and what it's going to be like to be my people and make this covenant and he moses tells them all and they all say like what you say, we will do. And then, like, the next chapter, they're, like, worshiping some crazy idol. Like, you would think that that would be the moment where you're, like, we're totally convinced. We see it. We've seen all these crazy miracles. We've seen all that you've done. We see that, like, you're still on the mountain there, like, communicating to Moses. It's like you turn the page and, like, they already blow it. It's already done. They can't even, they can't even handle, like, One page. One page. If they can't hold it together there in that moment, the Lord knew like we weren't going to be able to hold it together. The law was never going to save us. It was never going to rescue us. It was never going to, to bring us to a place where we were convinced and we were going to live for His glory on the basis of the law. But rather, He knew that we would not. And therefore, came and lived a perfect life on our behalf so we might experience the abundant life through his faithfulness. When we place our trust in Christ for salvation, we are raised with him, the scriptures tell us. We are raised with him. As Christ has been raised by God, so we also are raised. Peter finishes here with this same point. He says, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God has raised Christ from the dead and given him glory. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. He says that he has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess he is God to the glory of God. It is God who has raised Christ from the dead for our justification. It is God who has exalted Christ. Peter makes this same point. He's raised him and gave him glory. But the byproduct is for us. So again, we see God's faithfulness, and so we see our future. It's the pattern The paradigm for us as those who trust in Christ. We have been then raised with Christ. The Father has raised Christ. We have then been raised with Christ. If the Father has glorified Christ, then we also will be glorified with Christ. Not in the same way where we will be exalted as Christ was exalted, but God will keep his promise to us that we will see him face to face that he will dwell in our midst that we will know him and enjoy him eternally promises are important these promises especially because the context for this is again a season of suffering for this people when you know at the end there is a reward, there is a promise that will be kept, you can keep going. But it's when you are convinced that there's nothing there at the end, there's no reason to hope, that we often give up. It is no wonder that the New Testament often sets before us the return the hope that we have in Christ, that we will see him one day face to face. As Paul writes in his letter to the Thessalonians, he describes the return of Christ. He says, you know, that, that he will come one day and we will know him, we will enjoy him. He just gives this really brief, like, two-sentence description. It's like, not detailed. It's just, he's going to come again. And then he just just says this. Encourage each other with these words. Like, that's it. Because he knows that we need to hear that there is a return. We ought to encourage each other with these words. That Christ will return, we will see him, we will know him, we will enjoy him one day face to face. It allows us to keep going, to keep moving, to have the strength to conduct ourselves faithfully for his glory as exiles here in our time. It allows our faith to grow strong. And I look forward to that day when we don't need faith because we see him face to face. We're like, oh, I don't need that anymore. I have you right here, Jesus. Let's hang out. It's going to be so good. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your faithfulness to us, because you knew that we would not be able to be faithful to you. Lord, you understood that we we would let things go, we would let things slide, that we would not be reflecting your character, that we would give uh, that we would give in to temptation and fear, worry, anxiety. But Lord, you lived that perfect life on our behalf. Lord, you lived in such a way that uh, it brings us encouragement and hope because we knew through your work at the cross, or that you had paid that perfect price for us. We knew because uh, you were resurrected from the dead by the Father, or we knew because Romans tells us that this is the, the vindication, the validation of your work, the receipt that says that it was accepted by the Father. And so, Lord, because you have been faithful, Lord, we uh, are so thankful that we can know you. And we want to find our life, our true identity in you. We pray that you would help us to set aside those rival identities, those things that we are tempted to pursue, even those good things that are getting in the way of us enjoying you and all that you intend for us. And so, Lord, work in our hearts now. We pray that you would cause us to respond in worship and in thanksgiving. We love you, Jesus. Amen.